Well, we are in Mark 10 again today, the gospel according to Mark in chapter 10. Have you ever wished that you had asked for something only after it was too late? Maybe you missed the opportunity. Maybe it was a one-shot deal and someone beat you to it. You didn't know it would even be feasible. If you had, you maybe would have asked. Let's just make something up. Imagine someone famous and cool, we'll say Mark Wahlberg, shows up in a Lamborghini in the church parking lot. And after the service, we're asking him questions and fawning over his car. And, and then one of us says, hey, can I drive your Lamborghini? In fact, can I have it just for the day or, or a weekend? And then Mark Wahlberg goes, yeah, here you go. Here are the keys. I know I would be one who would be saying, shoot, I should have asked that. I didn't think he would actually let someone drive his Lamborghini. If only he could go back in time, right? There's something admirable and commendable about gutsy kind of faith. James 4 tells us that you do not have because you do not ask. And Jesus in John 16 told the disciples, ask and you will receive. But have you ever asked for something only to realize afterward that you just majorly embarrassed yourself? You went way too far, out on a limb, and the limb snapped, and you fell in front of everyone. It wasn't courageous faith, but cocky presumption. Imagine going to the president. You meet the president. You say, Mr. President, can I eat a stinky, messy, greasy meatball sub at your desk and put my feet up on, on your table there and, and then use your, your phone to prank senators just for fun? You know, that'd be a bit much, wouldn't it? Or even worse, imagine not asking for this or that all too outlandish thing and just stating it, declaring it. Imagine me saying, Mr. President, I want you to create Ryan Kelly Day, national holiday. We all get the day off. In fact, every U.S. citizen gets a $5,000 bonus in my honor. And there's no question mark at the end. It's just a period. It's a, a declaration. Well, we have something like that in Mark 10. As two of the disciples, James and John, brothers, tell Jesus what they want from him. And the problem was not really that they requested so much. It wasn't that the request was so big. I mean, after all, Jesus gives us heaven. He gives us God himself. He gives us pleasures forevermore. It's not that the request was really so big. It's that their request revealed their hearts to be so bad off. And yet it's a problem that's so familiar and so common. It's that quest for power for prominence, for prestige, for pride of place, for control. It's a problem as old as the fall. You can be like God. And we see it still today everywhere. It's in every story. And it's a real barrier to saving faith. It poses problems for people entering the kingdom of God. But only Jesus can forgive us of those ugly desires and pursuits. And only Jesus can begin to fix us according to his image and his ways 
of being a servant. So let's read our passage now. Chapter 10, verse 32 to 45. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink, or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Well, we can break this passage up according to four different P words. The first, the path Jesus is walking. The path that Jesus is walking. Verse 32 to 34 show us that he's on the way once again. It says on the road here in verse 32. But you might remember in the Greek, that's really on the way. And that matters because Mark has been telling us he's on the way. He's on the way. Back in chapter 8, verse 27, Jesus began asking them, who do people say that I am? When they were on the way. Chapter 9, verse 33, they're on the way. And then Jesus asked them immediately after, what were you talking about? On the way. And now chapter 10, verse 32, and we'll see it a few more times in, in, in upcoming passages. On the way to what? Well, on the way to the cross on the way to Jerusalem. And that gets explicit here. Mark says they're going up to Jerusalem, verse 32. That's new information for us. We've been guessing that he's going towards Jerusalem. He's heading south, but, but we now get it explicitly here. He's going up to Jerusalem. Going up? I said he was heading south. They're not going up geographically, but they're going up in elevation. Jerusalem sat up high. And so you would go up to Jerusalem. It's like you go up to Sandia Peak. Really, you, you go around it, or you go east of here towards it. Uh, you go over, but we don't say go over. You say go up if you're going up in elevation. 
Also, this phrase, going up, related to the fact that Jews came to Jerusalem during festive and pilgrimage times. They made a pilgrimage into Jerusalem for feasts or for sacrifice. The songs of ascents in the Psalms. Psalms 120 to 134 are called Psalms of Ascents. They're therefore going up, going up to Jerusalem. And that's what Jesus is doing. And he's walking ahead of them. He's walking ahead of them. Not a throwaway detail. This is his mission. He is going to the cross. In Luke 9, he turned his face to head towards Jerusalem. He must go it alone. This passage goes on to make that very explicit, that Jesus must go it alone. But here we see he's walking ahead of them. Then we read that they were amazed. The disciples were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. So apparently there's another group here. There's the disciples, and then there's a bigger crowd probably, a little bit further behind. They're following with Jesus, and they're amazed and afraid. Why? Well, we're not told explicitly, but we can piece it together. They're amazed and afraid because whatever is going to happen is getting closer to happening. Jesus has been talking about what's coming. He's been talking about the fact that he's going to be rejected and killed and be raised. Chapter 8, verse 31. Chapter 9, verse 31. And now, again, he tells them, and this time with greater detail than before. Chapter 10, verse 32, he began to tell them what was to happen to him. See, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. That much has already been told in Jesus' earlier predictions, chapter 8 and chapter 9. But now, you see verse 33, it says they will condemn him to death, condemn, that's new, that means sentence, and they will deliver him over to the Gentiles. We were told before the Jewish leaders will have a hand in this, and now we find out the Gentiles are involved as well. And it's these Romans, verse 34, who will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. What detail Mock, spit, flog, kill. I mean, you don't know how you're going to die. I don't know how I'm going to die. I don't know who's going to do it if someone would do it. I don't know how it will happen. Imagine knowing these two groups of people are going to conspire together. And it's going to go in this direction. This group is going to give it to this group. And then, and then this group is going to do these specific things. And of course, that's just what happened. Look over at Mark 15. Let's remind ourselves of this. We're in the middle of the story somewhat. We're getting closer to the end. But let's not forget that this is where it's going. This is what it means to be on the way. This is what Jesus is predicting. In chapter 15, you see verse 15, just the end there of verse 15. It says, having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is, the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews! 
And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him and they led him out to crucify him. And it goes on from there for more people to mock and to, and to curse. That's what's coming. And it's coming not just because Jesus predicted it, but because there are hints of this even in the Old Testament. Listen to Isaiah 50, which is about the suffering servant. You might think of Isaiah 53 is the place where there's the suffering servant. And you'd be right. But Isaiah has a big, long section about this one to come back 600 years before Jesus, who is the suffering servant of God. Like in Isaiah 50, verse 6, the servant there is speaking and says, I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. We'll come back to Isaiah later to think more about how Jesus is this suffering servant. But there it is in Isaiah 50. Now remember, three times Jesus has predicted his death and resurrection. Chapter 8, verse 31, was followed by Peter rebuking the Messiah. He rebuked Jesus. And then Jesus taught them about true greatness. There's a prediction in chapter 9, verse 31... And it's followed by the disciples arguing about which of them was the greatest. So then Jesus teaches them. And here we go again. Chapter 10, verse 33 and 34. Jesus predicts his death again. Three times in a short span of time. Teaching after each one. How will they do? But we already read it. We know how they do. They don't do well at all. Secondly. The place that James and John seek. The place. The place they seek is the most prominent seats of honor and power in Jesus' rule and kingdom. They want small thrones left and right of the one big throne. And notice how they somewhat manipulatively begin this conversation. Verse 35 Teacher, we want, to do, we want you to do for us whatever we ask you. It sounds dumb, right? It sounds like, well, he's not going to say yes or, or no to that. But, but if he had said yes, then that's a, a sure win, right? Okay, I'll do whatever you want. And then presumably he would do whatever you'd ask of him. And if he says no to that, do whatever we ask of you. If he says no, then, well, you haven't gone terribly far out on a limb, you might not get a rebuke like Peter did a couple chapters ago. It might be safe. Well, Jesus, ever the rabbi, usually answers questions with questions. He doesn't get caught in a corner. So verse 36, he says, what do you want me to do for you? And what a gentle and patient way to address this. He knows their hearts and minds. He knows their thoughts and intentions. He could rebuke them outright before they even get to it. Jesus sometimes does that. And here he says, what do you want me to do for you? How incredibly patient he's been, not just here, but all through chapters 9 and 10. 
I'd encourage you to go back and read chapter 9 and 10, just with that in mind. How does Jesus respond to their unbelief? How does Jesus respond to their bickering and fighting and maneuvering? How does Jesus respond to their doubts? How does Jesus respond to their spiritual slowness? He's amazingly gentle and patient. Nevertheless, here's their request. If you can call it a request, there's no question mark at the end. Verse 37, they said to him, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. When your kingdom comes, when this thing goes down, when you're in charge and you're the king, the, the, the Messiah, the Messiah not just in waiting, but the Messiah in actuality. When this goes down in your glory, we want to be vice president and chief of staff in your administration. We humbly offer our resume to you, Jesus. It's incredible, isn't it? In Mark 3, verse 17, we learn that Jesus gave these two brothers a nickname, the Sons of Thunder. Apparently, they were brash, brazen guys. Of course, Peter is bold, too. We've seen that a number of times. But Peter is beaten to the punch here, isn't he? Remember that Peter, James, and John made up something of like an inner circle among the disciples? There have been several times where they've had a just the four of us kind of meeting with Jesus. They've had special time with Jesus. Sometimes he teaches them more than what he taught the rest. Sometimes he's taken them up even to the mount and shown his glory. Where they heard from God the Father as they watched Moses and Elijah. They've been on the inside. And you see what's going on here? James and John, by making this request to Jesus to sit at his right hand and his left hand, they're squeezing Peter out. Maybe he was the more prominent one. And maybe they think, you know what? Let's get this request in before Peter goes and says it. You have not because you ask. Now we might as well just ask and see what happens but they're squeezing Peter out, and hence they're jockeying for power all over again. This is a pursuit of greatness and rank and prominence and power. New Testament scholar David Garland says, they hope to replace the self-serving oppressive power structure of the Romans with their own self-serving oppressive power structure. Nothing changes except the names of the rulers. Oppressive power gets recycled and new tyrants rise. The worldly ambition to be at the top and to beat down all others still rules. Or as the who saying, the new boss is the same as the old boss. But you still wonder... How could James and John have said what they said here, here at this point, now, right, right after Jesus gave his third prediction, the most detailed, now that he's going to Jerusalem, he's saying, look, we're going to Jerusalem. This thing's getting close, and, and how could they bring this up now? Well, they still had a wrong idea about what kind of Messiah Jesus was. They're still thinking in terms of a nationalistic, militaristic Messiah. 
Not one that dies, not one that serves, not one who will be a sacrifice, but one that will powerfully throw off the Roman tyranny and remove the Roman occupation from the land. A Messiah who would restore Israel to her former glory, like in the days of David and Solomon. I was reading in Josephus recently, that first century Jewish historian, in case you had any doubts about my geek credentials, I just said, I was reading Josephus recently, uh, like I was just perusing it, and I was actually. Uh, and usually that doesn't pay off, by the way, but uh, I found something interesting that I hadn't seen before. He was explaining the reasons behind the many Jewish wars of revolt that happened in the first century BC. And he said that the biggest motivating factor, by far the biggest motivating factor behind any of the wars of revolt in the first century BC was the expectation of Messiah. They went to war because they thought that guy is the guy, let's get behind him, let's go to war. So as it turns the century here into Jesus' time, messianic expectations are at a fever pitch and their understanding of Messiah was one who would go to war and win. And so they don't know how it's going to happen. They don't know what kind of swords or weapons they, they might get along the way or what Jesus will use to win, but they're thinking he's going to win and they're thinking they want to be in his administration when that happens. Perhaps they still didn't understand these predictions that Jesus had been making about his coming death and, and resurrection, even though he said it so plainly. Mark tells us he said this plainly. But maybe, just maybe, they're thinking, that's got to be a parable. He speaks in parables, and, and that's surely a parable. It means a bad day, then a good day. Or you almost die, but you rise up at the end and you win. Maybe they didn't get it at all. Luke 18 tells us a parallel passage to our passage today. Luke 18 says, they did not understand any of these things. They did not grasp what was said. Perhaps they had selective hearing. Any kid knows about this, right? If mom and dad say five sentences, but sentence number two has the words ice cream in it, Sentences three and four and five really don't matter much. They hear ice cream. Ice cream, how much? How, how much can I get? What kind? When? Where? Where are we doing this? And these guys have been hearing words like Messiah. Son of man, that exalted title from Daniel 7. They've been hearing about a coming conflict, but they've got a place for that. They know that's coming. The conflict is for the nation's victory. There's something about rising going on. That sounds exciting. And now we're walking towards Jerusalem, the kingly city. Oh, those are all words that would just keep the first century Jewish mind abuzz with excitement and, and perhaps a lot of other things more negatively understood would be ignored or pushed aside. But here's the real reason why James and John were seeking places of power and honor right after Jesus had given his third prediction and right after he had taught them now three times about what it means to be low and great and what it means to serve. Here's why. Because the human heart 
is this brazenly self-oriented. The human heart is this brazenly self-oriented. We all have this in us. We have all acted similarly at times. We may not have had the guts to put it all out there in front of others like this. We might have a, a more tasteful version of promoting self, a more tasteful version of protecting position, a, a slightly more modest version of maneuvering around for power and place. But that doesn't mean that we've been any less self-focused than we see the sons of thunder being here. The third P, the pain they will and will not face. There's pain that they will and will not face. Jesus gently but firmly explains in verse 38, you do not know what you're asking. And then he asks a question, probably a rhetorical question. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? The cup that I drink. Now, cup could just be my lot, right? It could just be uh, my fate. Are you able to walk in my shoes? That kind of thing. But the term cup has a lot of Old Testament precedent. There's some verses in the Old Testament that talk about a cup of blessing or my cup overflows, Psalm 23. But more often than not, when we see cup in the Old Testament, when it's used as a metaphor, it's a metaphor for God's judgment. It's the cup of his wrath, Isaiah 51. Even in Revelation 16, it talks about the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. Now we know the cup is referring to the cross as Jesus talks about this cup that they can't carry or, or bear or drink from. They're not able to. We know it's the cross. And so Jesus is more than just telling us that the cross is coming. Now he's starting to explain the meaning of it. He's interpreting it for us. The cross is where Jesus will bear God's judgment, God's wrath, God's just payment and punishment for sin. The New Testament later on calls this propitiation. 1 John 2, 2 and other places talk about it. Propitiation is God's wrath being quenched on our behalf. Propitiation. And by the way, what did Jesus pray in the garden? The night he was betrayed, remember that? He was praying in Mark 15, we read that he says, if there be any other way, Father, let this cup pass from me. The cup of the cross, of the judgment of God, there's no other way. It doesn't pass. The baptism with which I am baptized, this is less familiar image for the Old Testament, but still there's a connection and a correlation in the Old Testament, suffering is often described in terms of a deluge of water, a flowing water that overcomes us. And that's what baptism is, right? We see that when we get to baptize people here from time to time. Well, Jesus is about to be baptized in grief and in pain. Not a sprinkling of grief and pain, but a deluge 
He's about to be buried under wrath and pain and, and suffering. That's the pain that James and John will not face. They will not face that. They cannot face it. They will not face it by God's grace. No disciple will. Jesus' question to them was likely rhetorical, and yet they still boldly answer. Verse 39, they said to him, we are able. We are able. We don't know what cup means. Baptism, hopefully that's John's baptism, and we already did that. Check, we're 50% of the way there. Whatever cup means, we can do it. You said take up your cross and follow you. We'll do it. Cup, bring it on. We are able. Oh, obviously, they're not able. They won't do it. There's a pain that they will not and cannot face. And yet there's a pain that they will face, Jesus talks about. Verse 39, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. Jesus isn't now changing his mind. They won't bear the cup or the baptism of the wrath of God at the cross for the sins of the world. But but they will die. James will be the first martyr of all the apostles. Acts chapter 12, you can read it there. James is the first one, he's beheaded. John doesn't die like that, but you might know he was exiled to the island of Patmos, and that's where he died. They will face the cup. They will be baptized in pain for Jesus. Verse 40 says, to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant. It's for those for whom it's been prepared. Now you read the commentaries on this, the scholars on this, and they're not exactly sure what this means, what this refers to. Is there some sort of hierarchy in heaven? Are there these places of prominence, you know, the, the second chair and the third chair? If so, who's getting that? And what's it mean for the rest of us? Well, we, we can't entertain all the mystery there. It's far beyond my pay grade. But, but one note of irony is that James and John asked to be on the right side and left side of Jesus in his glory. And it is just days away from the glory of God shining in an ironic way through darkness and seeming defeat at the cross. There's a Roman soldier who's going to be there, and he's going to see it. He's going to see the glory through all the darkness and suffering. He's going to confess him as the Son of God. He's going to see glory. And at that cross, there's going to be one on his left side, another one on his right side. I'm not sure that's exactly what Jesus had in mind when he said this, but we're not wrong to be reminded here that Jesus' path to glory goes through the cross, glory at the cross, and they don't get it. By the way, neither do the other disciples. They don't get it. Verse 41, maybe, maybe it looks encouraging at first read. And when the ten heard it, the other disciples, they began to be indignant at James and John. Well, is this a righteous anger? How dare you? You shouldn't say something like that to him. You shouldn't demand. You shouldn't be about positioning. You shouldn't look for prominence. 
oh, no, no, they're not there yet. They're not there yet. I mean, that's the way Mark is telling the story. He keeps highlighting the foot in mouth moments and the question marks over the head. They are indignant here with jealous anger. How dare you, you two sons of thunder. Give me a break. I think I'd rank you four and five out of the 12, not one and two. They're indignant and jealous. Fourth, there's the payment that Jesus makes. The path he's walking, the place that James and John seek, the pain they will and will not face, and the payment that Jesus makes. Verse 43, there in the middle, he says, whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. And then we come to really what is the clearest description of Jesus's life and mission that we have in Mark's gospel account. This is the thesis for the book. For even the son of man, verse 45, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. What comes to mind when you hear that word ransom? It's not a common word in our 21st century American culture. Maybe you thought of a movie, a Mel Gibson movie or something like that. Maybe you pictured payment to a kidnapper. And you'd be correct to think in terms of one being captured and there being a payment in exchange taking place and freedom and release on the other side. All those are there in this word as Jesus means to communicate it. But, but here's the, the difference. We're not innocent children. We're not victims of bad guys who have held us captive. We're the bad guys. That word ransom, the word all by itself, indicates that by nature we were in bondage and in slavery. And it wasn't unjust slavery, it was just imprisonment. We've gone astray. We've gone against his ways. We were born in bondage to sin, in bondage to death. And therefore, by nature, we are all debtors to God, locked up and imprisoned, just like we sang about in that song, And Can It Be? Long my imprisoned spirit lay in death's door. How does it go? I'm trying to remember it from memory here. And anyway, you know that I awoke. The dungeon was filled with light and I, my chains fell off. That's, that's a release from bondage. And that's what comes. But we can't free ourselves. The bondage is too strong. The problem is too deep. Even Psalm 49, you wouldn't expect Psalm 49 to give us some insight in the word ransom, but here it is. It says, truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life. For the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice. I can't buy you out because I'm in. My life isn't worth yours necessarily. But there's one whose life is worth more than all of ours combined. And he was the ransom. And the payment was made. And hence, those who believe and trust in what he's done go free. 
free from the penalty of sin, free from the power of sin, free from eternal death and judgment, and free from the fear of death, according to Hebrews 2. He gave his life. It was a ransom. It was for many. Isaiah 53 might come to mind as we think about giving his life and ransoming people and this being for many. Isaiah 53, verse 10, says, It was the will of the Lord to crush him, the suffering servant. God has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. But, here's this, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. It doesn't have a bad ending, it has a good ending. But there's suffering before you get there. There's a resurrection to come but it goes through the cross. It's out of the anguish of his soul that he shall see and be satisfied. It's by his knowledge that the righteous one, my servant, will make many to be accounted righteous, justified, declared righteous. He shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, God says, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. He bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Even though Mark doesn't quote from Isaiah 53, I think he has it in mind. I think he wants us to think on it. In fact, I think Mark is pointing us back to Isaiah in a number of ways. Remember that Jesus said, a servant is one who's the greatest. Jesus is the greatest, and he's the servantist, if I can make up that word. He is the servingest one ever. He's the servant. He's talking about himself. He's the servant. He came to serve. And hence, we should think back, not just to Isaiah 53, but Isaiah 42 to 53 or 55 or so, all that, the suffering servant. Jesus is saying, I'm the suffering servant. And yet he's also calling himself the son of man. Again, that lofty title from Daniel 7. In Daniel 7, it's the son of man who's given God's dominion and kingdom and all peoples and nations and all their obedience into this dominion, which is an everlasting dominion. What a lofty title the Son of Man thing is. And Jesus calls himself Son of Man more than anything else. And so Jesus is saying, Son of Man? Daniel 7, you got that? Suffering servant. Same guy. Just like the Christ. The Christ is also the Son of Man. So now he tells us, the Son of Man is also the suffering servant. Jesus is continuing to clarify his identity, and he's continuing to explain his mission. That the suffering servant, the Son of Man, the Christ, will go to the cross and die and be raised. And now we're understanding something of the why this is going to happen. It's not defeat, it's not an accident. It's not just a lesson in how to turn the other cheek. No, no, no. It's the cup. It's a baptism of God's judgment that he takes upon himself. He came to be a ransom, a payment, a sacrifice, a substitute. The New Testament word for this, used more than any other, is redemption or redeem. 
Listen to these four rich gospel nuggets that we find in the New Testament. Like in Romans 3, 24, we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption, the redeeming, the, the ransom that's in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation bearing God's wrath by his blood to be received by faith. Or Galatians 3, 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Or Colossians 1, verse 13, he's delivered us up from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And 1 Peter 1, you were ransomed, bought, redeemed, rescued, from the futile ways inherited from your fathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. Friend, do you believe that Jesus, when he died on the cross, he was taking the payment for your sins? Do you believe that he has the power to deliver you from your sins and from yourself? Do you believe he has the right to transfer you from the kingdom of darkness into his kingdom of light? Do you believe the payment is enough for your sins and all the sins of those who would trust in him? If you haven't yet believed that, then believe it. Believe it to be true for you. Call out to him. Repent and believe in the gospel, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Seek him while he may be found. We're really not done yet, because Jesus' death really works in two ways in these last verses that we're looking at. It works as both a payment for sin, a ransom, and a path to follow. It is salvation for those who believe and embrace it, and it is also an illustration after they believe it. You can't have one without the other. In fact, you get to the one through the other. The only way you follow Jesus' model is through the forgiveness that comes in believing and trusting in the cross. And yet there is something here for us to live out in light of Jesus' ransoming sacrifice. He means to show this as a model for his followers to follow. And so here's a bonus point for you. A bonus one. Here's an, here's an extra P. What's better than four P's? Five P's. Not always true, but I think it's true in this case. There's the posture that they must take. The posture they must take. It's not like the rest of the world. And Jesus had a perfect illustration ready in the Roman government. In verse 42, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles, how do they operate? They lord it over them. How do the great ones function in the Roman world? They exercise their authority over them. Jesus and the disciples knew all too well about how Romans rule. And we do too. But it shall not be so among you. It shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. 
He's already taught on this whole first, last thing. Flip it over and upside down. The first is last. The last is first. You must become like a little child or you don't come in at all. But now he's showing himself to be the greatest servant of all, both with saving power and a powerful example, an ultimate example. Think of the stretch that there is between Jesus, the exalted one, in heaven with the Father, enjoying fellowship with the Father, one with the Father and the Spirit, to leave that and come to earth. Again, we sang, and can it be, and we, we sang, he left his Father's throne above, so free, so infinite his grace, he emptied himself of all but love and bled for Adam's helpless race. So Paul is surely right in looking at the cross and, yes, seeing salvation and hope and reconciliation and forgiveness for free. But he's also right to look at the cross and say, live like that, guys. Have this mind in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Have this mind. Do nothing out of selfishness or selfish ambition but consider others more important than yourselves. Look to him. Be changed by him. And live like him. This is the posture we must take if he has savingly served us to the cross. The stoop from heaven to the cross is the biggest stoop that's ever been done. You can't outstoop him. Now how should we apply this? As Christians who want to grow and be changed and live differently and think differently on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and for the rest of history, the rest of the future. Well, we should remember that God is sovereign. This passage reminds us that God is really sovereign. All those details being fulfilled later on. Jesus is in complete control of his future. He lays his life down. That word, deter, that word delivered, he was delivered over to the priests and all them, and then he was delivered over to the Gentiles. That doesn't just mean handed off, delivered. It's a unique word. In much of the New Testament, it talks about how God the Father delivered up his son to the cross. He delivered up his son. He delivered him up. God was in on this. Oh, yes, he righteously used sinful people and their free choice to sin as part of the equation, and yet he was sovereign over every single bit of it. And he's sovereign like that today still. He's sovereign over your lives like that still. Not one hair of your head falls to the ground apart from your father's will. He's sovereign. You can trust him. Look to the cross for that. We need a ransom, and praise God We've been given one in Christ. Let's never tire of what we have because of the cross and resurrection. Let's never get used to it. Let's still rejoice like, like the angels in heaven rejoice. They have no party like a conversion party. We should celebrate it. We should never tire from thanking God from it and from the realities that have changed in light of our salvation. 
that we're free now having been ransomed. Free not to walk away from him, but free from sin and to him, towards him. And free from the fear of death, free from, from coming judgment, free from worry about maybe him changing his mind. We're free from that. We can also be freed then from seeking our place, prominence, claiming our spot, jockeying for power, prestige. We can be freed from that. Hopefully you're increasingly being freed up from that. It's an upside down look at this world and what life is to do and be. And Jesus can free us from sinful ambition, from self-focus. Jesus can free us from the empty vacuum of ourselves. One more point of application. What are you praying for? What are you praying for? What are you requesting of Jesus? Requests reveal hearts. That sure was the case with James and John. Their request to Jesus, their prayer, revealed their hearts. What are you asking for? Are you asking for more righteousness? Are you asking for more communion with him? That'd be good. Are you asking for more stuff? Are you asking and asking and asking on behalf of other people? Is there a selflessness and other-mindedness reflected in your prayers? I know we all need more of it. Praise God for his grace. And let's remember that his grace not just forgives, but transforms. The cross, yes, is our salvation. And it leaves an imprint on our backs and, and on our fronts and on our souls that, that shows us the path Jesus walked and makes us want to be like him. Let's pray for his help now. Oh, Father, we need your help. We thank you for it. We thank you for the help. And it's so such a small term, small word to use. Help for what Jesus has done. But he has helped us and saved us and redeemed us. And we are grateful, humbled, and grateful. Help us, Lord, to think to know and to grow in how deep your love is for us, how true the sacrifice is, how finished his work is, and how safe we are in your arms. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.